Today I'm talking to Dr. Dariush Mazafarian, the Dean of the Tufts University Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy, where I uh, went a million years ago. Uh, we chat about the need for more research in nutrition, why there's more interest in food and nutrition on campuses everywhere, and his thoughts about the roles companies can play in improving nutrition. Please enjoy the show. Everyone, welcome to Food Talk, the podcast with me, Danny Nirenberg. I am very excited to talk to Dr. Dariush Mazafarian, the Dean of the Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy at Tufts University, which is also where I received my master's degree in agriculture, food, and environment a long time ago now. Um, before Tufts, Dari was at uh, Harvard Medical School. He is a cardiologist who has authored more than 300 scientific uh, publications on diet, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and obesity and uh, has also served on multiple advisory boards for the U.S. government, the American Heart Association, the World Health Organization, and many other uh, research institutions. He was also named by Thomson Reuters as one of the world's most one of the world's most influential scientific minds, which I think is the greatest uh, award ever. Uh, he's also a great mentor for people like me and a father of how many kids do you have? Three lovely children. I thought it was three. So you're a busy guy, to say the least. And I'm I'm so excited you could take a few uh, minutes to chat with us today. Um, I know I didn't even cover half of what you probably do uh, in your in your daily life. But is there anything you want to add to your bio? Well, I, I don't want to add anything to my bio, but I just want to add that it's such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for being here. You're, you know, one of my heroes in, in all of this work, and, and so I'm honored to have you. One of the things that I always ask our interviewees is to share sort of a favorite food memory with our listeners, because I think that really gets to the heart of why people are are interested in, in this work. And, you know, I, I had the honor of, of uh, hearing you speak in Stockholm, I think the year before last, and you had your mom with you. And I that was, I just thought that was adorable. I'm sorry, I don't know another word for it. And I, I wonder if you, you have a favorite food memory from, you know, spending time with your mom. Well, I think, you know, it's a really interesting question. Um, you know, people often ask me about sort of the research uh, stimulus or health stimulus, but I think the kind of cultural and personal stimulus for the work I do is, is also I- important. And, you know, I grew up in a household uh, like many of us, but not unfortunately all of us have, where I was fortunate enough that there was a lot of cooking. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and I also grew up internationally. I was born in the United States, but we lived overseas in, in different parts of the world, including in, in the Middle East, uh, in Iran. And, you know, growing up in a house that had multicultural cooking, I think, is something that I don't look back at, you know, one event or one dinner as, you know, this was this memory, but rather, you know, food to me is about uh, cooking and being at the table and buying ingredients. Um, And, you know, I didn't really know what that was like until I went to college and lived in a dormitory and... um, and, you know, ate, ate in a dormitory. And when I went to medical school in New York City, I had a one-room sort of dorm room with a sink. And I, I brought a toaster oven and a rice cooker, which could also steam. <laughs> right. And I basically went back to cooking all my meals in medical school um, with a toaster oven and a rice cooker. So, so um, you know, I think that just the, the, the cooking over and, and the experience of being in a house that cooks, 
I think was really formative for me. Yeah, I mean, I've heard this from a lot of, of folks and it's something I share with you, you know, cooking with, with my mom and sometimes my dad, but all of us eating at the table, it was just expected of, you know, in our family, I had to be home by a certain time and that went well through, through high school. We had, you know, we shared meals most nights together. And I think that's, you know, something that's missing and a lot of students, you know, the students that you're working with at Tufts and other people's lives because, you know, folks are busy and they have, you know, kids have a lot of extracurricular activities or parents are working more than one or even two jobs. And it's just something that that's being lost, but it, it's something I think, you know, a lot of us really value. Yeah. And this is not an area of my own particular research. So I'll just comment on it from a personal impression and personal perspective, you know, rather than sort of science. But, you know, if you had to separate out those two things, eating together at a table and cooking, right, obviously both would be ideal. Um, I actually more had the, the former of, of cooking because my father as a physician was very busy and often came home late and often, you know, we were eating when my father wasn't home, um, although on weekends we'd eat together. And when we went, you know, a birthday party for me, I have an August birthday, was going to the beach and bringing all your food and nice. eating together at the beach, you know. Um, so, you know, I think between those two things, if I had to, because again, we don't want people to feel guilty that they can't do have this perfect life of mm -hmm. you know, cooking and being together, I think cooking is more important. So I'd rather have people cook and have to split up the meals because, you know, parents are busy or, 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 or kids are busy than go get, you know, uh, fast food takeout and all eat together. I think that probably that cooking is probably more important. Both would be ideal. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the thing. We don't want to shame folks uh, into thinking, gosh, I can't do everything. I can't cook. And then, you know, put food on the table for all of us to eat at the same time. You just want to make sure that people are, I, I mean, I think what we all want and probably what most people themselves want is, you know, this care about food and eating things that make you feel good and that taste good. And, and, and sometimes they're just not in a place where they can, you know, make the meals that they want. So I, I think a lot of the work that you're doing and that I'm, you know, trying a little bit to do is to um, break down some of those, you know, the, the shame barrier that prevent people from, you know, just being able to feel good about what they're eating and, and, and help contribute to better health. Yeah. And, you know, we're skipping ahead a little bit to maybe some of my own current conclusions, but I think that, you know, the answer to our global nutrition crisis, we truly have a global nutrition crisis, that the answer to that is not to move backwards and to return to a, um, you know, sort of idealized world where, um, you know, everybody's cooking at home and has mm -hmm. their own natural ingredients in, in the garden and, um, you know, all the time, every day. Of course, we want more of that. We want to encourage that, but that's not the answer. The answer for the future is we need, you know, convenient, healthy, um, accessible food, whether it's made by others or made at home, that's, that's healthy, nourishing, available to everybody and good for the earth. And so, um, you know, packaged foods, restaurant foods, mm -hmm. fast foods, there's no reason why all of those things shouldn't be nourishing and sustainable. And so, you know, we have a, a massive sector of the globe, of the globe's economy, which um, compared to every other sector, which has at least in many ways improved the human condition, this is a massive sector of the globe, which has had some benefits, but is also harming people. And, right. You know, we wouldn't we wouldn't tolerate that from any other sector of the economy. Absolutely. We tolerate, tolerate tens of thousands, millions of people globally being harmed by, um, 
you know, buildings and cars and mobile phones and computers and office equipment, but we tolerate it from the food system. And so I think that that's something that's rapidly uh, changing and there's a a food revolution. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad we're getting into this now, sort of at the beginning of the podcast. So um, can you give people uh, sort of the scope? You know, you're talking about how the food sector can be so damaging to people's health. Can you talk about the scope of what that means for, you know, the things that you, you've studied your whole career, like cardiovascular disease and obesity? Yes, I think, you know, the um, as I mentioned, we really are facing a global nutrition crisis. And I don't use any of those words lightly. Um, you know, the Poor eating, you know, our food system is now the number one cause of poor health on the planet, exceeding any other cause of poor health. So for anyone who cares about health care or health or well-being, um, you know, food should be at the top of the list. Um, it's also the single biggest issue for um, sustainability. Um, if you combine um, greenhouse gas emissions, water use, land use, deforestation, stress on the oceans, this is the single biggest environmental issue, exceeding cars, exceeding oil, exceeding a lot of the other things that, that we talk about. Um, this is also, you know, a, a huge issue for competitiveness of business and um, government budgets with mm-hmm. both high income and middle income and low income country budgets being, um, you know, really strangled by crushing healthcare costs, um, particularly true in the United States, but happening uh, everywhere and only going to get worse with the global obesity and diabetes um, epidemics. Uh, and then this is also an issue for disparities. This isn't the biggest issue for disparities. Still, you know, um, uh, unequal access to education and resources and just discrimination, those are still the biggest causes of disparities. But, but nevertheless, people who are marginalized and are disadvantaged um, often have the poorest food and that leads to a vicious cycle where kids don't learn in school, yeah, parents can you, get sick, kids can you, can't even go to school. Sure. So, uh, sorry, just Andy, just to finish, but so if you put together, you know, the, the health implications, mm-hmm. the business implications, the environmental implications, and the implications for disparities, this is a, a global crisis. Yeah, I mean, that disparity issue, can you talk a little bit more about that, how people get sort of into a cycle of what they can afford is not the greatest food and, and, and why that's so important to create better access and affordability for those things that are, are nutritious? You know, one of the great successes of the last hundred years has been, you know, a remarkable reduction in sort of frank hunger and famine. Um, there still is a famine, there still is hunger mm-hmm. in every country in the world, but but, you know, really, really tremendous reductions in that. So that's been a very conscious success of the industrialized food system. It was, it was consciously, purposefully industrialized and fortified with food uh, thought of as a delivery vehicle to deliver nutrients and fortified supplements to take care of malnutrition. And that was a, was a success. You know, the Green Revolution, massive increases in production and, and transport of starchy staple crops. Um, fortification of foods, all of those things, you know, reduced prices, increased access, and, and drove down hunger. There still is a lot of hunger, but it, but it drove it down. But at the same time, though, what happened is this industrialization led to, um, you know, a dramatic reduction in sort of minimally processed healthy foods as a proportion of the diet, which has led to an explosion of, of chronic diseases. And, you know, the, the access to these advance to the advances, the access to you know fruits and vegetables and nuts and, and seafood and, and healthy plant oils is also incredibly unequal. And so mm-hmm. 
um, in every country in the world, there's you know massive differences between the poorest and the wealthiest in terms of access to these foods. Now, in, in low-income countries, still, um, you know, we're not talking about the, the poorest of the poor who are struggling to meet every meal, but in low-income countries where you know people are not in famine, but they're you know, some in some cases actually, the lower-income people have better diets Absolutely. than the high-income people because you know the the high-income people are trying to emulate the West. Um, so there are there is a reverse disparity in some of those countries, but but generally speaking, still the poorest people around the world don't have access to um, you know anything more than starchy staples. And you know we think of these countries that you know uh, just have just the, the poorest uh, amount of refined wheat or corn, maize, rice. Um, but you know in the U.S., a lot of we're also subsisting on starchy staples. They have to be processed. They have to mm-hmm. be in bright packages and have, you know, smiley faces and cartoon characters on them, but they're still starchy staples. Absolutely. And I mean, I think, you know, that's something at Food Tank that we bring up a lot. All of this investment, you know, whether we're talking about the the developing world or the industrialized world is really in starchy staple uh, crops. It's it's maize and wheat and rice. And, you know, there's been less invest, investment in, you know, what are, are considered poor people food, you know, really nutritious grains, leafy greens, you know, uh, and, and, and other things that are actually, you know, nourishing that just don't fill people up. And I think, you know, there's this sort of... Um, tendency to think of of modern foods you know these processed foods uh, uh, you know people want them it, it means they're moving up the economic ladder but you know as you've described these are really the things that are killing a, a lot of people both in, in rich and poor countries alike and so can you describe i mean we all know that that junk food is bad for us but can you describe sort of the toll it takes on human health well, I think, you know, to step back to, you know, what you, you described about what we all know, I mean, I think people all have a sense of what's happened, but I think that it is useful to step back first and mm-hmm. think about, you know, what's happened and how quickly has it happened over 100 years, less than 100 years. So um, over less than 100 years, we've had, again, a huge explosion in agricultural production, um, focused especially on, as you said, on starchy staples and fortified foods, um, and that, that has had a lot of positives, so we don't want to m- minimize that. At the same time, we've had, you know, nutrition science, kind of modern nutrition science was kind of born and developed during the same period, and over the first half of the last hundred years, all of the focus was on nutrient deficiency diseases and preventing diseases like rickets and pellagra and night blindness and scurvy, things that were endemic and actually pretty common even in the U.S., through getting enough nutrients into the food supply. And it wasn't really until the last 30 or 40 years that the science started to focus on chronic diseases like uh, obesity and diabetes and heart disease and cancers. So you have this wave of science followed by a wave of agricultural development to deal with too few calories and too few nutrients for malnutrition that was, again, relatively successful. Now that's been followed by a second wave of science that's starting to tease out how poor diet quality, which is different than calories and and a few micronutrients, poor overall diet quality, the quality of the types of foods we eat, how they're processed, Mm -hmm. is leading to an epidemic of chronic diseases. That science is just just really emerging the last few decades. And now the the entire food system, from agriculture to restaurants to retailers, um, uh, is um, to food manufacturers, is trying to quickly figure out how to pivot and deal with that. And so, you know, we're at this, 
you know, incredible period where you have these um, rivers of science and rivers of, of industri- industrial production all kind of washing together. You have this, you know, 50, 60 years of focus on getting more starchy staples and, and fortified foods into the food supply. You have new science where, you know, we have to start thinking about diet quality and healthy fats and healthy foods, and we can talk about those and what the priorities should be. Um, and then you have now the agricultural system and food manufacturing system and restaurant and retailers, the four categories of food industry, all seeing this and trying to respond to it. It's not that they're not trying to respond to it. They all see it and they're trying to respond to the new science. But, you know, you're, we're turning a massive ship, right? That's very yeah. hard to turn. But it is turning. It is turning. And so I don't um, – I'm not – you know, it's, it's – I, I don't think that – people forget how, how rapidly this has happened. I bring yeah. this up because – it's not as though for a hundred years we've been quote poisoned by unhealthy junk <laughs> right, food. Right. You know, that's, that's not what that, this has all happened so quickly and over with every decade changing. And so it's going to keep changing. And and I'm not worried about the status quo. The status quo is 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 going away. You know the food system is going to change. But what I want to be sure is that the innovation that happens is evidence based. Sure. And so going from you know. Um, corn chips to Cool Ranch flavored corn chips. That's not innovation. <laughs> right. Going from gummy bears to non-GMO gummy bears, or, or, that's not gen- innovation, right? Or we organic gunny, gummy bears, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Organic non-GMO gummy bears, that's still just <laughs> gummy bears. So, so we, need to, we need to really make sure that the, that the next 10 years, there's going to be huge innovation in the mm-hmm. food system. But we have to be sure the next 10, 20 years are following the best the best evidence. Yeah. And so, you know, I could go back. Well, sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. I, go ahead. And then I'll, I'll, I'll get back to my point. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, so, you know, to go back to your question is how do you even define junk food or people say processed food is bad? Well, I mean, that's not all, you know, processing per se is not bad. We need to process most food to eat it. Even cooking is processing. Mm-hmm. Um, most food has to be processed to be eaten. You know, maybe fruits and nuts are the only exception um, or the major exception. So, you know, it's really we have to think about optimal processing. How do you optimally process foods? Um, and we have to think about, you know, I guess even junk foods. What does that mean? I mean, a packaged food could be healthy. So just being a packaged food doesn't mean it's unhealthy. So right now, most packaged foods and processed foods are, are unhealthy, but that's that's not, um, you know, it doesn't have to be that way. Necessary. Yeah, it doesn't have to be that way. So so, and that's where we're again in this fuzzy space where the public gets confused because they say I should be eating quote natural foods, not not any mm-hmm. processed foods. Mm-hmm. And we can talk about this too. But most margarines right now out there are better than butter. Not that butter is that bad for you. Butter is kind of neutral. But most margarines now are, are chock full of healthy oils from fruits mm-hmm. and and beans and and nuts and legumes. Yet people say, well, but it's margarine. It's it's unnatural so i shouldn't eat it so and and you know on my um, twitter feed that that's like a huge area of controversy yeah the absolutely public. just don't get that natural isn't always better um so so i think we have to you know we have to thread the needle with with good science um mm-hmm. to be sure we're always moving forward well i love your point about processing and this is something that i've been trying to push back on a lot um, especially around the work, you know, that we're interested in, in around food loss and food waste, because processing and, you know, ha- has been instrumental in preserving foods. And I think there's kind of now this cult of fresh that really focuses on, you know, we, we all need to be eating, you know, food that just came out of the ground. 
and, you know, that is, you know, beautiful and abundant from farmer's markets and that kind of thing. And, you know, for a lot of people, fresh isn't always an option either because of, of where they live. You know, when, when I was a kid, we, we lived about an hour from the grocery store. So yeah, my mom would, you know, we, we grew a lot of stuff in our garden, but during the winter she would buy fresh fruits and vegetables, but we also relied on, on frozen and, you know, stuff she canned, stuff she bought in cans. I, I think, you know, that there's, you know, um, this tendency to believe that anything that, that like, as you said, is processed in any way is bad for you. And I, I hope that as, you know, sort of the food movement, you know, as the food movement progresses, we can, you know, break down some of those, those stereotypes about what, what good food looks like and what it means. Yeah, um, I, you know, couldn't agree with, with you more. I think everything you said is, is spot on. And so, you know, with a, um, every five years, there's a scientific advisory committee that advises mm-hmm. the government in the U.S. on the dietary guidelines. And of those 15 scientists, every five years, at least two are from, from the, the Tufts Friedman School. And, you know, this, this last round was no exception. And one of the scientists, Alice Lichtenstein, who uh, was the vice chair of the scientific advisory report, which was an excellent report. I have a couple of quibbles with it, but overall it was an excellent report. Um, you know, she makes this point all the time that we can't just say eat fresh fruits and vegetables. Frozen is great. Frozen is fine. Canned, as long as it's not, you know, canned with tons of preservatives, canned is fine. Um, and so, yeah, we have to, again, the, there's there's sort of these simple rules of thumb, like, um, you know, eat fresh or eat local or eat mm-hmm. organic or eat everything in moderation that sound very appealing and make good bumper stickers, but they don't work. Um, they're not exactly right they're kind of right and um and we really need to have nuance and the nuance is is where um um all of the potential benefit is because again we we're not able, we're not going to be able to anytime soon have fresh minimally processed foods available for all you know eight and a half billion people on, on the planet right. um you know uh, uh, equitably so so we have to think carefully about that. And, and this is where, again, you know, we come back to this. I think innovation is really important. And consumers now in every country are really moving towards buying foods with at least the aura of health and sustainability mm-hmm. and um, transparency and traceability. Um, and sometimes it's just the aura of that. It's not actually that, but but it, but at least consumers are moving that way. And so this is the next 10 years is a real opportunity for to push the food industry to, to do things that are really evidence-based to, to give us healthier foods. And, and you know, I guess just to, to end, it's just we keep coming back to this, you know, when we want to limit smoking, it's kind of clear what we want to do, you know, don't smoke. When we want to increase physical activity, it's a little bit more complicated. You mm-hmm. know, you could do strength training, you could walk, you could, but more or less we get it, you know, you need to be active. But, but diet, when we say we want a healthy diet for people, that definition of healthy is really complicated and actually a moving target and, and evolving with as the science evolves. And so that's a big part of the puzzle is we can't only push towards system solutions and policy solutions. We also have to keep growing the science to know the direction we should be going. Absolutely. So there are a couple of things that you've said that I find really interesting. 
one and and these things will will converge in a second i promise but one is you know you brought up this point about the importance of the private sector so you have you know restaurateurs and manufacturers and and producers you know coming up with with different innovations uh, and then the second thing that you said that i thought is so interesting that innovation isn't always innovation so how do you you know reconcile you know there there are big corporations and they're not all bad you know that's something that i think Tufts was really good at teaching me that we can't demonize corporations or agribusiness it's you know the the people who work for them have good intentions Uh, And it's very nuanced, as you said before, but how do we sort of reconcile the innovation that's coming from the private sector? Um, You know, uh, companies like PepsiCo, who, you know, in in some cases have been responsible for a lot of of the problems that we're talking about. You know, they're they're not producing a lot of, of healthy foods, but are now more and more interested for good reason in the nutrition sector. How do you kind of reconcile you know, the this approach that you want of evidence-based solutions and, and scientific solutions with, you know, companies who want to make money? Well, you know, the short answer is it's complicated. So, you know, just like the nutrition science for what defines a healthy diet is complicated and you have to think about healthy fats and effects on the microbiome and processing and the way foods are mixed together and phenolics and, you know, a whole bunch of uh, of complex molecular pathways. When we want to talk about industry, it's complicated. It's not, you know, again, tobacco industry is, is a good alternative example where there's a handful of major companies. They essentially have one product and it's bad for us. Um, for food companies, there's, sure, there's a lot of big companies, but again, they're distributed across four large areas, agriculture, retailers, restaurants, and manufacturers. And there's there's hundreds of of middle-sized companies and thousands of small companies. And they're all competing with each other and, and innovating, so there's a lot of heterogeneity. And second, it's not a fight to the death. You know, mm-hmm. we don't want to eliminate the food industry uh, across all those sectors. We want to, to leverage and harness what they know for good. At the same time, you know, the food industry writ large has used and continues to use a lot of the same tactics of uh, of tobacco. Um, they, they deny the science, they attack the scientists, they co-opt, you know, um, advocacy groups with, with funding, they lobby heavily, um, and in some cases, as, as in the recent, um, you know, hijacking of the California legislature by the American Beverage Association, mm-hmm. actually hijacked the democratic process. And mm-hmm. I don't know if you've talked about that in your pod- podcast. Oh, Not yet. Horrifying <laughs> right. example of, of, of you know, um, abuse of power. So, um, so it's complicated. So I think that, you know, my view of the food industry writ large is that, you know, they, they must be part of the solution. Mm-hmm. It's not a fight to the death. They must be part of the solution. There are definitely people within companies large and small, including our alums, who really want to do the right thing. And at the same time, they, they don't, they can't lose money because if a company tries to do the right thing and loses money and goes out of business, it doesn't help them. Or, or their their cause, and so it's 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 tough. And and my feeling is that this is where government um, and large non-government actors um, like you know advocacy groups and NGOs really need to play a role here because you know government can play a role to create level playing fields to to make sure that everybody understands the goals. Um, and so I think government absolutely needs to play a role to make the food system healthier 
mm-hmm. uh, and, and more equitable. And food industry, um, you know, needs to 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 really you know take responsibility for what's happened the last 20, 30 years, um, but also um, you know um, try to move away from some of these really really the worst the worst of the worst tactics. I think need to end. You know, I yeah, think absolutely. That, Again, this example of the uh, ABA in California, I mean, that's just, just horrific to me. So, so it's complicated. And, um, you know, but, but the positive thing is that even compared to five or ten years ago, my impression, I'd love to hear your impression, my impression of even compared to five or ten years ago, there was genuine recognition that, that the status quo mm-hmm. is no longer tenable. Like, mm-hmm. it, it, it's, it's game over, right? There is no way in ten years consumers are going to be buying all the same stuff they're buying now. There's huge losses in profitability of most typical consumer packaged goods, m- many um, fast food restaurants that haven't innovated or losing money. Um, so, again, the, the, that gap is being filled with innovation. Some of it is, is you know, not really better for you or better for the earth. It just gives the impression of, of being better right. for you or better for the earth. But, but I really think there is actually recognition. And so um, I think this is where ac- academia government um, uh, advocacy groups like food tank and others we need to you know get in the same room and and push for for the right you know the right evidence-based directions forward absolutely I mean I would agree I mean five or ten years ago things you know like you said things have changed dramatically and uh, you know companies large and small are recognizing that they have to respond to consumer demand and they're not looking at it as you know something that uh, is like sort of a punishment. They're looking at it as a, a, an economic opportunity, as they should. Um, but what, you know, what I think people like you—I don't mean to speak for you—but people like me fear is greenwashing or you know, and uh, making things sound good that aren't. And, and you alluded to that before. Uh, you know, I, I think what, the role of people like you and academia at large really—you have to make hold these these companies accountable, even though in some cases, I mean, you, you know, you're, you're dependent on, on their funding or their um, support for some of the, the work that, you know, we all do in, in different sectors. Would you, would you agree? Yeah, I think we have to work. So, you know, we have to work with the food industry to, to give them strong guidance about the science. We have to hold them accountable publicly and privately when they mm-hmm. are doing bad things. And then, um, you know, in addition to trying to work with the food industry, there always needs to be people outside the room throwing rocks to, to say that, you know, business as usual is not okay. And so people that, you know, there are people who are out there saying, you know, big food is big tobacco and lawsuits, you know, writing lawsuits and, and other things like that. That's not, you know, what I'm personally, you know, um, involved in. But, but I respect those, those people and their views because we need to have people, again, on the outside throwing rocks. To, to say that this this is a big problem um, and uh, and it's a, it's a challenge and it's a challenge but it's 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 happen- it's changing so quickly I mean I've been studying this um, since really finishing medical school a little more than 20 years ago um, and it's changed so much in yeah. just 20 years the science has changed so much uh, the industry's recognition has changed so much the consumer and the public's appetite for knowing about healthier food has changed so much in just 20 years. So, um, you know, I think it's it's changing so quickly right under our noses. We sometimes forget how, how rapidly things are moving. And so I'm very, very optimistic, actually, that, that things are, are moving toward, toward a positive direction. And, 
you know, at, at the at the Friedman School at Tufts, I mean, we're I think one of the world's you know, leading institutions to studying to study uh, nutrition science and policy. When we uh, uh, developed a comprehensive strategic plan, when I first got to Tufts about four years ago, um, it took about eighteen months. And and one of the the main messages we heard from our external friends and stakeholders was that. You know, an academic institution like ours has to take an active role in these debates and an active role in this Absolutely. process. So we need to be a trusted voice for, for the rigorous science, whether it's science about policy or science about nutrition. And we need to be uh, taking a, a, a leading role in actually mm-hmm. making that trusted science uh, turn into action. And so we've been working on that and happy to discuss you know, some, some yeah. of that work as well. But I think universities, I think, for too often have published important findings and hoped that their alumni or their faculty would individually go out and translate that. I think academic institutions as institutions need to get a little bit outside of their comfort zones and, you know, go onto the front line. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I I think, you know, being a trusted voice is important, but it's especially hard right now when, uh, you know, with this this uh, sort of political climate that we're in where science is under attack. Do you feel as an institution that Tufts is, is you know, getting that some of that, uh, uh, you know, attack on science from, from, you know, the media, from politicians, from others? Is that something you, you grapple with? Well, you know, the, the, um, the general kind of attack against truth being truth and facts being facts and science being science is a problem, right, across all fields. Um, that's certainly true. I think what's problematic, I don't think that in and of itself is, um, you know, affected nutrition science more or less than, you know, anything else. Um, but, but I do think that parallel to that um, and actually feeding into that, just in the last few years, there have been a series of book authors and bloggers and media heads, and even scientists who are making their careers by criticizing specifically nutrition science, mm-hmm. specifically saying, "There's why are we putting out dietary guidelines? We don't know anything. Or, you know, all large observational cohort uh, uh, data is meaningless and completely useless. Or, um, you know, nutrition science is, is so weak. You know, one day coffee is good for you, the next day is bad for you, alcohol, you know, cocoa, butter... And they don't know the science or know the methods and understand kind of the natural evolution of the science and how the, the, the progress we've made. And if you look at all of the advances in the last 30 or 40 years, how they've been expected and reassuring and no different than in any other scientific field. So I do think separately from this bigger environment, which, which you asked about, of kind of this anti-truth, anti-science, there's a more problematic you know, undercurrent now, which which makes it into the editorial pages of the New York Times, makes it on the front page of, of you know, major newspapers and major websites, you know, best-selling books, attacking nutrition science mm-hmm. as, as a way to usually advance people's careers who, want, who are the attackers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's really problematic because, um, you know, that, that hurts. Um, that hurts millions of people because if somebody attacks nutrition science so that a policymaker may not act on something that we know now, or a funder may not fund a study that's needed to be done because they say, oh, you know, the science isn't strong enough to do this. The downstream consequences of that hurts millions and millions Absolutely. of people. And, Absolutely. and so that to me is, and it's just new, it's just the last few years. It's really the last three or four years. There's just been a, a handful of people 
that have have done this. And it's unfortunate because prior to this, I would say that the overall the world of book authors, bloggers, media heads, uh, and nutrition have done a really a positive job of pushing the agenda forward. And people who weren't scientists per se, but people like let's say Michael Pollan who wrote wrote several important books, or even Upton Sinclair to go back to the jungle, you know. There were people who took their work seriously, um, were balanced, were rigorous, and and did their best to translate the information to the public, and did really had a positive benefit. Mm-hmm. I would say the last few years, the, the efforts of people like that who have worked hard has been sort of hijacked by you know I think attention seekers who want to diminish all of nutrition science as a, as a way to push their own agendas forward. And and I don't know if you. If you have sensed it, but I've seen, again, there's prominent articles being published yeah. in, even in scientific journals about this. Yeah, and it's such a different sort of media and communications environment, you know, because there are so many outlets and then there's social media. And so people get very, very confused, which I think, you know, is is frustrating because they don't know who to believe. And when they should be believing, you know, more in the science, they're they're not because they're confused. And I think that's definitely something, you know, that that we're seeing you know, and, and, you know, Food Tank doesn't always focus as much on nutrition as I'm sure you would like, but it's something that we try to, you know, we, we try to sort of break through the noise and give people, you know, the, the facts as, as we know them and, and, and link to reputable sources. So I, I think, you know, again, that's something I, I learned at Tufts. I, I do want to get in, into a little bit about, you know, what, about the Friedman School itself. So when I was there, uh, Willie Lockritz and Molly Anderson, who I'm still very close with, you know, were, were leading the program. And it was much, much smaller. And that speaks to how old I am. But, it, you know, I, I felt like it was a very personalized program. I felt very supported. Um, and, you know, I've talked to Will Masters since then. And things, you know, looking back as a student, you know, things that I would have, you know, that I didn't realize I would have wanted to learn, you know, now that I run a a nonprofit and I'm just not, you know, a writer and a researcher, you know, more business skills around food. And I'm sure farmers and chefs who who take the program and, and, you know, people who are interested in in nutrition are, are, you know, have different wants and needs. How, you know, under your leadership, do you think the school is changing based on, you know, the, the, the needs of, of these new students? Um, so thanks for asking that question. It's great to, to talk about the, the Friedman School. Um, you know, I have the, the greatest job uh, in the world, able to have the honor of trying to, you know, take this institution forward um, from the great place it was given to me. Um, I can tell you a little bit about the, the school, not you know, more for, you know, listeners. Um, we are, um, you know, again, one of the leading graduate institutions focused on nutrition, science, and policy in the world. You know, we give master's degrees and PhDs. And um, we're not training nutritionists. People often think, you know, you hear a school of nutrition, they think like of a nutritionist in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Although we have a program with Tufts Medical Center where we jointly train, we give masters of science to people who are, who are getting trained as clinical uh, nutritionists or dietitians. Um, we are giving a master's degree or PhD for the food system. Sort of think of it like an MBA for the food system. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, you know, our, we've, we've um, really tried to focus our efforts across our divisions as well as several initiatives. Um, we have five divisions, which I think cover a really broad spectrum of, of issues across the food system. There's agriculture, food, and environment, which 
really is about the inter interlinkages between how we grow our food, how we ship our food, supply chains, sustainability, and health. Um, we have biochemical and molecular nutrition, which focuses on you know human metabolism, animal experiments, in vitro studies, the microbiome, brain health, um, healthy aging, uh, you know all of the kind of the core um, molecular and, and human uh, pathways related to nutrition. We have food and nutrition policy and programming, which uh, is a division that focuses on um, huge focus on international but also domestic food mm-hmm. policy related to the work of USAID. The, the work of other food aid programs, um, the Farm Bill, and, and other programs in the U.S. Uh, we have a, a division on that's relatively new, um, two years old now, that, that uh, combines behavior change uh, uh, interventions and communication. So it's really about going into the community and working with community stakeholders and systems and hospitals um, and businesses to, to have real change. And then we have a division in data science, which is kind of the big data of nutrition. How do you do meta-analyses, policy modeling, demographics, cost-effectiveness, uh, epidemiology. In addition to those five divisions, you know, there's the Feinstein International Center, which is uh, focused on humanitarian crisis and working in some of the toughest places in the world that are faced with famine, conflict, war. You know, whether it's Somalia or Iraq or Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, really just just looking at how livelihoods are affected by those crises and how that impacts uh, uh, food and nutrition, and then. You know, in addition, we have initiatives that are that are ongoing, and um, I mentioned the Public Impact Initiative. Um, we, it's a, we have a link on our website if you look up Friedman School Public Impact Initiative, trying to translate all our work directly to policymakers. And then we have a, uh, the newest initiative is our initiative in food and nutrition uh, entrepreneurship and mm-hmm. innovation, which is to to help our graduate students uh, and our alums link to companies uh, and social ventures. Um, to learn business skills. And it's not just for for-profit ventures. It could also be for, for nonprofits. Absolutely. And you're one of our entrepreneurship advisors. Yeah, um, very as, exciting. As founder of Food Bank. Um, and so I think that program, I mean, entrepreneurship to me is about how you bring together an idea, mm-hmm. human capital, and other resources, cash and, and, and equipment to make a new idea a reality. And, and whatever someone wants to do in the next, you know, in their, in their career, those skills are needed, right? Whether they're working in a big company, creating their own company, um, creating a, a social venture, they need to be entrepreneurs. And so that program, which is now just, we just last year was the first year and we're, we're, we're growing that, I think ultimately may even become a sixth division at the school, really thinking Amazing. about um, how we innovate uh, in the food space. No, and I think that's so cool. And I don't mean for this to turn into a commercial for the Friedman School, but I mean, I think I would not be the person that I am today, for better or for worse, if I hadn't gone there. And I think all of these opportunities that are provided are really exciting, especially for the, you know, since, since you began, uh, you know, being the dean. I, I am interested in hearing, though, you know, when, when I applied to the Friedman School, there weren't as many sort of food uh, programs at, at major universities. Now there are a lot more food and sustainability and food and nutrition programs. Uh, does that, you, do you see those those programs as competition for the Friedman School? Well, I think that, you know, if, if people don't come to us for their graduate training, there's lots of other great institutions and there's not really one set of other schools that that um, people might might go to because it depends, again, we have, we, we Across so many areas. Absolutely. So if somebody's more interested in health and public health, they might go to a school of public health. 
Um, if somebody is more interested in the bench science, they might go to a medical school's graduate program or a medical center's graduate program. Uh, if somebody's more interested on the sustainability side, um, you know, they may go to a land grant university. That, that many of the land grant universities are starting to, to create really strong programs in, in food systems and sustainability. And I think that's great. I mean, the more people that are well trained and are going to these programs, mm-hmm. uh, the better. As, as, as I said, we're facing a global nutrition crisis, the likes of which the world has never seen. And so we need more people who are well trained. I think what's unique about our school is under one roof, the same school, let alone the same campus, to have all of these pieces together where a student can work with and take classes and interact with faculty and do projects across these areas and, and learn a bit about all of them is really quite, quite unique. Uh, and then I think, you know, this focus on translation and, and real, real world change is also relatively unique. We, we don't take the kind of ivory tower approach uh, of, you know, writing papers and hoping somebody reads them. We really are out in the world making change. And so I think that, you know, that's what's unique about our school. But um, there is exploding interest in food and nutrition. And, um, you know, we just launched a, a minor at the Tufts Undergraduate Arts and Sciences in, in, in Nutrition. Um, hopefully that will become a major at some, at some point. So, you know, we need um, more scientists and more um, business leaders and more entrepreneurs uh, and more people in government who, who understand these issues. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just before I let you go, I mean, you've been doing this work your entire life, right? You, you were at the Harvard School of Public Health. Now you're at Tufts. What advice do you give somebody, whether they're a doctor or a farmer or, you know, a, a young person who really wants to get into nutrition or food? And wh- what advice do you give them as they start their career? Well, first, it's the right Direction. If you have any interest in this, it's the right direction because, you know, if you, again, you think about health and the health consequences, um, uh, of, of food, think about the economic consequences, the environmental consequences, the consequences for social justice and, and, uh, disparities. This is a massive problem. And at the same time, all of those things are actually fixable. Um, so in 10 or 20 years, we could have significant solutions for many of those problems. So this is, exactly the right exciting time to, to, to start focusing on this. Second, and you know, I hope you'll attest to this, you need training. So, you know, there if you try to figure this out and do it yourself or read a few blogs online or buy a couple books and then and then do what you want to do, you know, there are decades and decades of, of experience of people. And so to not rely on that Absolutely. and to not build on that, I think is is, you know, not the smartest approach. I mean it, it'd be no different than you know, trying to start to, to heal patients and be a doctor without, hey, I'm just going to skip medical school, right? I don't need that foundation. So, so I think that, um, I think that, you know, it's the right time. Go for it. Follow your gut and, um, you know, definitely get more advanced, you know, graduate training, whether it's a master's degree or PhD, whether it's at Tufts or, or elsewhere, um, because that foundation will let you, um, you know, Take it to the next level. And, and I guess, you know, there are people, many, many people, many, many more people who are interested in this, but it's not their core passion, but they want their own work, whether it's in advocacy or business, to link to these ideas and they want to have the best science. Link to us at Tufts. Contact us. We are um, going to be launching a council of, of organizations that wants to link to food and nutrition, entrepreneurship and innovation. We have our existing public impact initiative. You know, uh, we have ways to, 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 um, you know, for people to 
learn from us and for us to learn from them. Absolutely. And I think that foundation is so important. And I'm, I'm grateful for my time at Tufts. I'm grateful for this ongoing relationship. It means a lot to me. I didn't mention before, so many interns have come through different Tufts program to, to be at Food Tank. And that's always been really exciting to me because I feel like I'm giving back a little to the, you know, because I had such great mentors. So I want to thank you for your time, for the work that you do. You're, you're, you continue to be, you know, somebody I, I admire more than you know. So thank you for all of that. Oh, it's so kind of you. And, um, you know, I look forward to um, uh, doing a joint food tank uh, Tufts event uh, in Boston again soon. We had one about a year ago. It was wildly successful. So great. Yeah. Looking, looking to, to do the second and, and that this will, I hope, become a regular event. Um, that people are, are unbelievably interested and unbelievably confused. And so, you know, we need groups like Food Tank to, um, get the right information to people who, who can make a difference. Thank you. I really appreciate that. I'll, I'll hope to see you soon. Great to talk to you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening today. A shout out to our producer, Stephen Ray Morris, who makes this podcast possible. And please subscribe and rate this podcast wherever you listen. It would really mean the world to me. You can check out Food Tank at foodtank.com. Email me at danielle at foodtank.com. And follow me on Twitter at Danny Nirenberg and on Insta at Food Tank. Thanks again. See you next time for Food Talk. <laughs>